invite you to pray with me. Our gracious Father, we come now to look into your word in, in a bit more detail. Uh, we have sung of your word, we have heard your word read, and we are thankful that you have given us your word and that it is true and it is eternal and that it is always going to endure the test of time and stand and you have preserved it for us in such a, a powerful way and many have given their lives for your word and we are grateful to have it and we're grateful that you have not left us in darkness but you have revealed to us your truth and your word and you have most clearly revealed it through the person of your son uh, the word of God made flesh who dwelt among us, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now as we look at the gospel of John and what you have inspired that gospel writer to write down for us and how it points us to the Lord Jesus and his identity, uh, we pray, Lord, that as we look at this gospel again this morning, uh, that we would be enthralled with the Lord Jesus Christ and we would see his beauty and his power and his authority that we would be humbled before him and that we would remember what a great and mighty savior it is who has saved us and whom we serve, the power that belongs to him alone to save sinners, and he indeed has redeemed us. We are grateful to you and ask that you would bless now the teaching and the preaching of your word, that you would open the ears of your children to hear clearly and to not be distracted, and that you would enable me to speak forth your word with clarity and power and authority for the honor of your name. We ask this in Christ. Amen. So, thinking about John 9, I was thinking about the whirlwind that we as a uh, nation, but even as a world, have been through when it comes to sickness over the last couple of years. I think each of us can say that we have been impacted by uh, this COVID virus. Uh, we've either known people who have died, or some of us have lost our own loved ones, and uh, we have family and friends that have been sick because of it. And so I thought about the last couple of years and I, and I, and I was reminded that um, sickness and death are part of this fallen world. If you haven't come to know that yet, you, you should. If you look at the world, sickness and death are part of the fallen world. It also reminded me that God created us from the dust of the earth, and to the dust we shall return, you know, in Genesis 3, 19. My, my father-in-law is, um, is a very serious man. He's a very serious man, but there are times where he makes comments that make me laugh. And Nancy would tell me when we were first married, and I would go and I'd talk with him, and she'd come back encouraging me and saying, well, I saw my dad's gold tooth today right? Which means he smiled, because he doesn't normally smile, but he had this gold tooth, and if you can make him smile enough, you would see it. And he, had it, he has his times of humor, and, but one of the things he would say that 
I just always remembered, and, and it makes me laugh, and it, I'll say it to you in Serbian. He said, you'd be driving with him, and he would say, I'm going to totally butcher this, Nancy, I know, but he would say, gle, gle, on bega od smrt. Gle, gle, o bega on smrt. Is that pretty good? So I'd, he'd say that, and I came to learn what he was saying, and so he would say to people that are jogging along the street, he's saying, look, look, they're running from death. Like that was his, that was his, his phrase. Look, look, they're, they're, running, they're running from death. And, and so I was thinking about even in just the world that we're living in, I think that's what struck, has struck me so much about these last couple of years is how people have responded to this, this virus. It, we seem to be living in a time of this heightened fear of sickness and death where people are, are running to all kinds of things because they're so paralyzed by, by fear and, and almost, you would say, shell-shocked by the fact that there is this virus or other sicknesses in the world that, that people become sick by, like, like this is something new to humanity. And this fear has been so great in people that even in our own country, based off of, you know, even the freedoms that we have, where people have been willing to sign away, like literally give away their own liberty and freedom because they are so afraid of death and so afraid of sickness that they're willing to give away things in order to get a sense that somehow they, they aren't going to be impacted by this. And, and it's like a vain hope of deliverance from sickness and death. And, and of course, we're, people are taking medicines and they're doing things with masks that they wouldn't normally do. And all of this is, is revolving around this, this running away from death, this, this fear of death. And we've spent trillions of dollars dumped into medicines over not just the last couple of years, but multiple years to treat different ailments and sicknesses and diseases. And some of those results have been good, and we should be thankful for it. Some of them haven't been so good. Um, we've been able to find cures and so on. But, but I think the lesson that we should not forget is that there is no amount of money or medicine or government control that will ultimately deliver us from sickness and inevitable death. We may be able, we may be able to put off death for a while. We may be able to make life more comfortable in this world. But each of us, each of us, unless the Lord returns... The sobering fact is that each of us will go through the valley of the shadow of death. There, there's, there is no way around it. We, we will come face to face with God at some point. And it may be for some of us 70 years, 80 years, 90 years from now if you're young. But for some of us in our middle age, it's maybe 30, 
30 years if the Lord should leave us, and some of us are even much closer than that within in a decade or a decade and a half, right? We will go through, through that valley of the shadow of death, it, and it cannot be avoided, and it cannot be put off. What does that mean if we know that? How should we as God's people be thinking about it? And, it, and I think it's this. We should not be a people who live in fear of sickness and death. Not only because God is with us and he has promised to raise us again and bring us to glory, those future promises, God is faithful to his word, that should comfort us. But this should also be a comfort to you and me, beloved, that the God we serve is perfectly sovereign over sickness and death. God is faithful, but he's also sovereign over sickness and death. That means whenever we get sick, God is the one who, if, if not gave it to us, permits it to happen. Whenever we suffer, God is the one that allows that suffering to come into our life. The scripture says in Psalm 115, verse 3, God does whatever he pleases. Now, if you don't know God, that may trouble you because you're like, well, what if God does something that doesn't please me? What if God does this or God does this? And so you may be troubled by that, but as Christians, that comment that God does whatever he pleases and that God is sovereign over sickness and death, that should be a great comfort to us because we know that God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't, create, he doesn't do errors. He doesn't look back and regret things that he has done. But everything God does is for his glory, and it's also for our good. And that should be a comfort to us that God has that power, and he ordains everything for his purposes, and his hand of providence is over all of history. It's over every detail of our lives, and that's a good thing. And the Old Testament demonstrated God's sovereignty over all of those things. The Old Testament shows us God, Yahweh in the Old Testament, raising people from the dead, healing the sick, extending life for kings, and so on. You see God over history doing miraculous things in the Old Testament. I mean, even delivering people by spreading and separating a sea so that a whole nation of people could walk through. And the point of the Gospels and specifically here in John chapter 9, verses 1 to 39, is that Jesus, our Lord, Jesus Christ, our Savior, demonstrates the same power and authority as the God, as you read in the Old Testament. And never in the history of humanity has a person, this has been said of Jesus, that he virtually banned sickness and disease from Palestine. In wherever Jesus went, he healed so much 
and so many people that he almost single-handedly banned disease from an entire community and an entire city called Palestine. It is absolutely remarkable. This is why John, at the end of his gospel, says, what I've written for you and what we're going to read in John 9 is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. But he did so much more that not even all of it can be recorded. And so Jesus here demonstrates that power and that authority of healing in this passage. And his healing is not like these false healers and teachers that you'll see on TV or that you may have even been to their churches and and they'll claim healings and they're always healings that seem to be mysterious back ailments or neck ailments and things that can't be verified or confirmed and people will say that they came out healed from these these places. No, when, when Jesus heals people, he actually heals them instantaneously. He heals them completely. And the healings and the miracles that Jesus does are healings and miracles that are done on people that are verifiably sick or diseased. Visibly, you can see that they are sick or diseased. Either they're on their deathbed, or they they are paralyzed, or they are deaf, or whatever it is, or they are dead. Jesus heals people verifiably sick. And in the case we see this morning in John 9, the man that Jesus is going to heal instantaneously, as he will will read, he does, he, he heals a man who is actually born blind. And the reason that Jesus does these miraculous works was not to make our lives more comfortable on this earth, though he did that for people. It was not to ensure that we or these people will always be in perfect health in this life, because what happens to the blind man? He eventually does what? He dies. What happens to Lazarus, who he raises from the dead? He eventually does what? He dies. What happens to all the people in the Old Testament that God did miraculous works on? Eventually, they all died. So the idea isn't that Jesus came to give you a perfect, happy, comfortable existence on this earth. But the reason that Jesus does these miracles, and this is what John is going to press forward for us in, in the gospel, is so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Jesus does this so that we might see in Jesus the almighty God who comes to redeem fallen sinners like me. God does this. And we see that here pictured in this miracle in John 9. First, we're going to see the healing in John 9, 1 to 7. And then we're going to see the various responses in chapter, in verse 8, all the way through 40. The Lord Jesus, who came and gave sight to this blind man, ultimately, we know, comes that we might be saved, that blind sinners may be saved. So let's Let's hear God's word in John chapter 9, and then we'll look at this, spending most of our time in verses 1 to 7. 
As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, is, not, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is he. Others said, no, but he's like him. He kept saying, I am the man. So they said to him, then how were your eyes opened? He answered, the man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. They said to him, where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes and I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, he is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight, and asked them, Is this your son, who you say was born blind? How then does he see? Now see, his parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we don't know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I've told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? I love that. And they reviled him, saying, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes? 
We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him, and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said to him, you have seen him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may be blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. That is the reading of God's word. What a blessed account of God's word. Jesus, sometime after the Feast of Tabernacles, John says that he passed by. He's probably somewhere near the temple, and he sees a blind man from birth. And it doesn't say how they knew the man was blind. Um, maybe, I think the man was probably well-known. He probably was by the temple begging, because the only way in those days that you could have food to eat, if you didn't have your family caring for you, the only way that you could sustain yourself was to go to the temple where other people were, and you had to beg for money because you couldn't work, you couldn't do anything. And so maybe they saw him at the temple and heard about him being talked, talked about him. This guy was common there. But they know that he, John tells us that he is blind from, from birth. And the awesome thing about this passage that just struck me is that and you see this in the Gospels all the time, is that Jesus noticed him. Jesus always has an eye for the downcast and the, the trodden and the weak. Jesus always sees them. You, you see it in the Gospels. And, and Jesus sees this blind man begging at the temple, and his disciples picked up on it again. Here's Jesus again. He's looking at the, this blind man. And so they, they ask him a question now. And their question is, it's an interesting, it's an interesting question because they, they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? In other words, they, they see Jesus looking at him and they automatically think, like, who's to blame for his blindness. Who, who is to blame for his bl blindness? It, it had to be either his parents or himself. And so there's a theological assumption under there. 
And the theological assumption that they're making, and you actually see a lot of this in Christian apologetics today, the theological assumption has to do with the fact that God never is involved or permits bad things to happen. That if ever something bad happens, it's a matter of man's free will. So when something terrible happens, it's because we have free will and we get God off the hook. If something good happens, you can attribute it to God. But if something bad happens, it's always a way to try to deliver God from, this is in our kind of some modern apologetics, to deliver God by this, this talking about man's free, free will. And so they think God had no say in the suffering at all. And if he's suffering and he's blind, man's free will brought it about, um, which basically says man is sovereign over his life, but, but not God. In any case, the disciples assume it's the sin of his parents or his own. And the reason they thought this way was not apologetical. They're not really trying to defend God or the faith, but their thinking came from misunderstandings of, of passages like Exodus 20. So Exodus 20, verse 5, or Exodus 34, verse 7. Exodus 20, verse 5 says this. I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. This is what he writes to Israel. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me. Right? What does that sound like? God is saying, I'm a jealous God, and I'm going to visit the iniquity of the fathers to the third and the fourth generation. So th this is how they're thinking about the world. This is their worldview. Or Exodus 34, verse 7 says, God says, he's a God keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but will who by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And so you read passages like that, and for them, they're thinking that this man must have done something himself, even in the womb, they sometimes thought a child could sin, or it was his parents, and God is just carrying on the sin and the iniquity to punish him these many years later. Now, of course, the problem with looking at those verses in that way is that they're misunderstanding those verses because those particular verses the Lord's not referring to particular sins of individuals, but he's referring to the corrupting effect of a nation that abandons God's law. Those are those verses are about. And in some ways, that's what's happening in our own country. There is an effect and a consequence of abandoning God's law that has an impact on the future generations of a nation. And so they were misunderstanding those passages, and they're thinking on a more of an individual basis, a one-to-one -one correlation, but that's not what God was saying. God, in those passages, is talking about the nation as a whole. And you even see the Scripture speak to that. Uh, you, you see the Scripture speak to that principle, because consequences right after Moses came down from Sinai and the people were worshiping a golden calf. Do you remember what happens when he comes down and they're all worshiping this golden calf? God comes down and judges all the people. The principle laid out is carried out right there. 
You also see it laid out in the wilderness. So when, Egypt, when Israel comes out of Egypt and in the wilderness they complain and sin against God, what happens to those who are 20 years old and up? They all die in the wilderness. And those people that came out of Egypt, they die in the wilderness. God punished the entire nation because of their disobedience. And it impacted, it even says that your children, the ones under 20, will suffer in the wilderness. And so as a nation, there was suffering that came about because of the disobedience of this people. So there's no one-to-one correlation there. And the one-to-one correlation in how God deals with people came from passages like this in Deuteronomy 24, 16. God says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul who sins shall die. The son shall not suffer for the iniquity of the father, nor the father suffer for the iniquity of the son. The righteousness of the righteous shall be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked shall be upon himself. In other words, scripture says that each soul is accountable and responsible for their own sin before God. And that's true of each of us. We are we are not saved because we are part of a church. We are not saved because we are part of, of, uh, part of a community. We are saved because Jesus Christ has taken the punishment for each of our individual sins. Like, he has paid the price for you in particular, and now that your sins are covered and you, and you are saved, you are then brought into his community and into his people. But you must stand before God on your own. You will give an account to God on your own for your sin, and if you have sinned, you will be judged. Now, if you don't have a redeemer, that's a problem. If you don't have a savior to cover you for that sin, then you will stand in judgment on your own, and God says the soul that sins will die. But praise God, he came to cover believers for their sins. And so that principle is laid out also in the New Testament, John 5, 14, and 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. 30. The, the people are sinning, and God is bringing judgment on individuals in those contexts. Even happened in the Old Testament. Miriam was leprous because of her disobedience to Moses. And so while there are consequences to our sinful choices... God judges each person on an individual basis. And so now you could think, these disciples, this is their worldview. So they're looking at this blind man, and they're thinking he or his parents have sinned. And what is underneath that kind of perspective is it leads people to a sort of self-righteous perspective. When you start to look at other people and you, you start to think that that blind man must have done something or his parents did something that caused him to have this sickness, but I'm not sick like that, therefore I must be better and righteous. I'm okay and I'm good. And so they're condemning this blind man in a way for being blind because they're thinking something is wrong in his life for this to happen. If things are going well for you, you must be on God's good side. 
if things are going bad, God must be punishing you. Who thought like that in the Old Testament? Job's friends. Job, Job says this in Job, read it. His friends are always saying, Job, you must have done something bad. And what does Job say? I can't think. I can't think of it. Why is this happening to me? Job is confused. He doesn't know why. But what we know is we read Job and you see how his friends are, are misunderstanding. They're thinking that Job must have done something wrong. And at the end, Job is like, I've evaluated my life. I don't know what it is I've done. And we know that it wasn't anything Job did. How does God describe Job in the very beginning? It says he was a righteous man. And his family even made offerings and sacrifices. They were a very godly family. He was a godly man. He hadn't done anything. But yet, what happened? God permitted Satan to come and to bring this suffering on Job so that at the end, God might display through Job. Because what did Satan say? Bring suffering and Job will do what? He will curse you to your face. This is what Satan's saying. He only believes in you because you do good things for him. And God says, oh yeah, really? Go ahead, have Adam, and you will see that his faith is going to bring God glory because Job is going to suffer. And through all of the suffering, while he struggles and he does end up sinning in his heart and his mind, at the end, God gets the glory because Job is held up by the power of God. And that is what we're seeing here with this blind man. Because Jesus, when he sees the blind man, he cuts through all of the disciples' misunderstandings. He cuts through their cultural uh, preconceived notions. He cuts through all of that, and he says, this man is not blind because of his parents or his own sin. This man is born blind so that God might be displayed in him. God permits and ordained this man's blindness that God might demonstrate his power and glory and authority. What is that what does that mean for you today? I don't know your situation. I don't know what you're going through, all of you, some of you I know, but I don't know if you're suffering, if you have an ailment or you have a sickness or in some way you have something going wrong with your life. I, I know like my mom at times is um, going through a hard time with my dad and his Alzheimer's disease and sometimes she's questioning, you know, oh, it's God punishing me, why am I going through this, and so on, and it's hard to work through that with her because it's a struggle, right? But yo, I always come back to try to remind her, and I'm reminding you, and Jesus is reminding his disciples that God is sovereign over the suffering. He already knew you would be going through it, whatever it is you're going through today. It was already ordained from before the foundations of the world, and it's not a surprise to God. It's, it's not that God is caught off guard by this, but you're going through whatever it is, but because God has ordained it, and the reason he has ordained it is so that God might be 
the works of God might be displayed in him. And so this blind man who, who is there and has been blind from birth, Jesus is saying nothing is out of God's control. It's not random. It's not without purpose. It's not a mistake. It's not because God doesn't love him. It's because God desires him, this blind man, to bring God glory by redeeming this blind man from his blindness that he might ultimately be saved. That's good news. And so God uses this for his glory and this man's good. And so here's the, and we're going to see what happens, of course, but here's the awesome thing. You'll notice there how Jesus says, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. But then you see the next word there? What's the word? We. He says, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. Now, the we there, Jesus is immediately in that context. He's referencing the disciples who are with him. That's the immediate context. He, he, he's saying, we, you and me, the disciples that I have that, that are going with me, the apostles, we have to continue to do the works of the Father who sent him while it is day. It's day when Jesus is there. Jesus is shining in the world. He's doing his ministry. A night is coming when Jesus would go to the cross when no one's going to be able to work like they were. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, we must keep doing this work of God to demonstrate the power of God while it is still day, before he goes to the cross and night falls. Now, even though the application is immediately referring to the ministry of the disciples while Jesus was with them, I think there's still an application for us and the church. And I say this because I'll just ask it like this. Is Jesus still in the world? Is Jesus still in the world at work in the world? Absolutely. Jesus is still at work in the world, and he's at work in the world, and his light is shining in the world, and his light is shining through his people and through the church by the spirit that he has given to his people. And so that we, while it's directly referencing the disciples there, also applies to me and you. We must be doing the works of him who sent Jesus while it is still day because night is coming. And the night that is coming is the night of God's final day of judgment when he pours out his judgment on all sinners of humanity. And that day is coming. But right now, Jesus is at work in his church through the spirit of God who is abiding with us. And we are still to be at work and doing the works of Jesus. And so here's the question. What is our work? Is our work to be seeking to do the miracles that Jesus did that confirmed his identity? What is our work as a church, as salt and light, our work is not the work that Jesus did with his disciples there of doing these miracles to confirm his identity. 
Our work is one work, and it is to preach the gospel of the light of the gospel in the face of Jesus Christ to a dying humanity. Our work is to bring the light of God's message to people that there is a Savior and a Redeemer who will save you from your sin if you will turn to him in faith and repentance. The the work that Jesus does is he makes the spiritually blind to see. And he makes the spiritual deaf to hear, and he makes the spiritual lame to walk again, and he makes the spiritually dead alive. Jesus came to save sinners and to bring sight to those who cannot see that their condition is a condition that will send them to an eternal torment of God's judgment and hell. And we carry on that work by proclaiming that message. And we carry on that work by not just proclaiming the message, but by being salt and light. By by being God's people in the world and doing good works and serving God and one another and and honoring him by the lives that we live. The whole Beatitudes, the whole Sermon on the Mount, That's how we are to live in the world. And all of that, what Christ came to do, is pictured in this man who then goes and obeys. Look at what John says in verse 6. Having said these things, Jesus spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. And so he went and washed and came back seeing. Why did Jesus use dirt with saliva? doesn't say, but I think he picks up the dust of the earth, which is a picture of fallen creation, a picture of a dead world, and he makes mud, And he puts it on his eyes that he might demonstrate that he is the one who restores and has power over the curse. And he puts the mud on his eyes and he sends the man to the pool from which the high priest went and drew water during the Feast of Tabernacles. You remember that over the last few weeks? The water symbolized the blessings of God that he had given to Israel in the past and that he's ultimately going to give to Israel when the Messiah came. And he sends this man to go wash in that same pool. And in sending him there, Jesus is revealing that he is the one sent from God through whom the blessings had come to Israel, the one sent by God to save sinners. And so the man went and he washed And he came back seeing. Is that amazing to you? A man born blind came back physically seeing. Have you ever seen that? Have you ever seen that happen in the world? 
Do you know anyone who was born blind that now sees today? Have you ever even read an article about it? Have you searched it on YouTube? Have you looked it up? Does it happen? Doesn't happen. And yet this man came back, and he came back seeing. And how did they respond to it? How did they respond to this amazing transformation that happened to this blind man? Well, here's how the neighbors responded. Verse 12, right? They brought him to the Pharisees. No, the neighbors, verse 8, who had seen him before as a beggar, they're confused. They're saying, what, what happened? Isn't this the guy? Some are like, yes. Some are like, no. They couldn't understand the transformation. And the man says and testifies to them, and I don't think he's a believer at this point, but they ask him, and he just says, this man, they call Jesus, he put mud on my eyes, and I went and I washed, and, and now I see. And the neighbors are confused. And I want you to think about this in the parallel of your transformation by the gospel. Your transformation by the gospel of coming from blindness to sight is just as miraculous. And when people talk to you after you have come into meeting Jesus and they say, what happened to you? Why are you different? What was the change in your life? That's kind of what's happening with this blind man. How is it you see now? And the blind man initially just says, I don't know, this man Jesus. They're confused. And so they bring him to the Pharisees. But they're not bringing him because they think the Pharisees are going to condemn him. They're bringing him to the Pharisees because they're the religious leaders. And they're, they're wondering, maybe they can make sense of this. How did this happen? And so they bring him to the Pharisees. And then the self-righteous Pharisees, right, typical of them, but typical of all of us, if we're really honest, they look at this man and they look at the healing and all they could think of is, oh, there's that Jesus again doing this thing on the Sabbath. And, and, and they say, this man is not of God. Whatever happened to you, it's not from God. This Jesus is actually a sinner and a violator of God's law. And so some of them are confused as well. There's a division among them. And then they ask the man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? And then you notice, what does he call him? Not the man who did this, but now he calls him the prophet. So now the man is coming to a deeper understanding of who Jesus is. Now he's thinking of Jesus as more than just a man, but Jesus must be something else. He's a prophet or the prophet. And so the Pharisees, again, they don't believe him, so they bring in his parents. Can you confirm this? They say, yes, he was blind, and now he sees. And so they said to ask him, and so they do, and they come to him a second time. And now the blind man, they say, give glory to God, tell the truth, how this happened. And you, you see in his response, he's, and now he's saying, listen, I don't know if Jesus is a sinner. I know Jesus, this man, told me to wash my eyes, and I see, I know that Jesus is some kind of prophet from God, and I know that Jesus isn't some kind of sinner because no one could do what Jesus just did for me if he were not of God. 
And do you see he's, he's growing in his understanding of who Jesus is? He says, this has never happened, but I know that I see. And then John ends, and it's just so, to me, it was just so awesome. That after all of this responses, and this man is growing, and something happened, Jesus comes back to find him. Jesus goes and he goes to find the man because they cast him out of their presence. And Jesus knows what he needs to hear now. Because remember, this man had never seen Jesus. He didn't know who Jesus was. He only heard about him. But he never laid eyes on Jesus. And now that he can see, Jesus goes to him and finds him and asks him, Do you believe? in the Son of Man. Looking right at him, the blind man says, who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus says to him, you see what he says? You have seen him. It's like his eyes were wide open now. The scales have fallen off, the darkness has left, and he's looking at Jesus, the one who was blind, and he now sees Jesus clearly. And what is his response? Lord, I believe. And what does he do? He worships Jesus. Spiritual blindness to spiritual sight, he comes to life and now he sees that Jesus is indeed who he says he is and he came to save that man that his glory and power might be displayed in him. He does the same for all of us. He says... Whatever your life situation is, I have come to redeem sinners. And your response can be to Jesus, Lord, I believe. Or it can be what Jesus talks about next, and we'll just close with this. When Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see the blind, the lost, the sinners, may see. Then he says, and those who see may become blind. What is he saying there? I came for the sinner and the blind so that they might see me. But if you think you see clearly and you think that you are righteous before God, and you think you don't need a savior, Jesus says, for that, I came for judgment. Because you will, in the end, see Jesus, but you will see Jesus as he makes you kneel with a rod of iron, and then you get the fruit of your darkness. The Pharisees are troubled. Are we blind? Jesus says, if you were truly spiritually blind, you would have no 
guilt for what I'm saying here, but you're saying that you see, and so your guilt remains. Beloved, let us see Christ in his word. Let us come to him because he has removed our guilt. He has taken our shame. He is our Savior and our Lord, and our blind eyes have been made to see Jesus for who he is. And let us be salt and light in the world that we might go into the world and tell them that there is a Savior who can make them whole. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you for the testimony that we have read here that John recorded for us by inspiration of your spirit that this blind man, born blind from birth, was made to physically see, but even more than that, he was given spiritual eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that he might be redeemed and saved and, and made new. And we thank you, O oh God, that you have done the same miraculous work for us, that you have taken the scales off of our eyes and you have lifted the veil that was over our hearts and you have taken our hearts of stone and you have turned them into hearts of flesh that we might see the Lord Jesus for who he is and that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing in his name we may have life. Lord Jesus, thank you for saving us and for redeeming us. We give you all of the glory for your patience and your kindness and your mercy. And we thank you that you have promised to restore us, not only our soul, but even our bodies, that though they decay here in this world, yet there is a day coming when you will raise us up again from the dead. Our bodies that are in the dust will be raised up and reunited with our souls in a perfect union that you have intended from the creation of the world, and we will be restored in health, in strength, in vigor, in love for you in every way. We ask for your blessing on Christ's name, in Christ's name, amen.